want to welcome Commissioner Big Pasco to um, our roundtable for May of 2019. Uh, Commissioner Popko has been a commissioner for about four or five years. Uh, has previously been a professor at ASU Law School. Uh, was a pro tem judge in Tempe. He's done initial appearances, and now he is the um, guru for lower, lower court appeals. Most of our civil stuff. He does some of the criminal stuff as well. Uh, so let's welcome Topko. So let me start out with a uh, brief uh, warning. So like uh, millions of middle-aged Americans, I have recently had cataract surgery, uh, and it could not have gone better, according to my doctor, at least the surgery, uh, but the recovery, not so much. So if it looks like I'm winking at you, I'm not. I'm just trying to clear the blurriness. I still have some sensitivity to light. If I do something like this, it's not a face palm over anything. It's, it's the lights that have been bothering me. And I'm still learning how to use reader glasses. And so you're not seeing me at my best in terms of logistics here. Uh, so please bear with, uh, bear with all of that. Um, thank you for having me again. I, I'm going to sit. I, I, the last time I was here, it, it's a very informal discussion that I kind of want to have with everybody. I mean, I do have some things that I want to point out, but I'm, but I'm hoping we do get a conversation going. Uh, I don't think I'm a fount of wisdom. Some of you know that I'm not a fount of wisdom. And so uh, let's just have a conversation about, um, about uh, what it is we're doing. So I have been a commissioner since January of 2015. I started at the IA court and um, moved to uh, limited jurisdiction appeals in January of uh, 2018. So it's been a little over a year now. Uh, Judge uh, Patty Starr is the other judicial officer, but she's rotating out uh, right after the judicial conference, and it will be uh, Judge Doug Gerlach who will be uh, replacing or succeeding Judge Starr uh, um, uh, at that time, right after the conference. Um, I, uh, those of you may remember Myra Harris, I succeeded her uh, when she retired. I do have mostly a civil docket, but I am doing some criminal and some uh, admin stuff. Uh, I was a clinical professor at, at ASU Law. I ran the post-conviction clinic for a while, uh, taught uh, sentencing, uh, legal research and writing. I taught in pro. Most of my background is criminal, uh, and so me doing mostly civil, is kind of, you know, out there. Um, you all probably know the substance of the law that you're dealing with much better than I do. Uh, I am still new enough at this job that I am learning the substance of the law as I'm doing the appeals, uh, as I'm reading the cases, as I'm reading the statutes. Uh, you guys have been doing this for a while, those of you who are new, and those of you who are new, welcome and congratulations. Uh, so I'm still learning the substance of a lot of these, uh, a lot of these uh, issues. Um, and prior to that, I was um, in, uh, I was at the Federal Defender's Office doing criminal uh, again as well. Uh, all right. So that's it for uh, intro. So let me pass this out before we get to it. So a couple things didn't get into the packets that I sent over, and I'll just give that to you, and it's some rules and a, and a case quote that hopefully I get to um, on here uh, as we're talking. So, there we go. So, here's the basic 
uh, thing I want to talk about. We've done our intros already. Talk a little bit about the nature of the appeal, trial procedures, some protective order cases, eviction cases. I am going to talk a little bit about attorney fees, and you're probably not going to like uh, what I'm going to say about that based on the conversation that we had a couple of moments ago uh, on there, and, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it um, uh, when we get to that point. And then I have some odds and ends uh, I wanted to uh, mention that that works. All right. So. Everything I'm doing is just a review of the record. Uh, a lot of times litigants don't know that and they'll start sending me new affidavits and new stuff. And if you've looked at some of the uh, minute entries that uh, were part of the packet that were put together, I can't recall if any of them actually had this. But I have some stock language, you know, how I'm confined to the record, this isn't a new uh, bite at the apple uh, uh, situation, and so anything that didn't happen in front of you guys, I'm not really going to consider it. I'm not allowed to consider it. Um, so I am constrained by the record below. So what does that mean for you all? Please make as good and as clear of a record as you possibly can. Some of it's mechanical and logistical, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, some of it is just remembering when people start using pronouns and it starts getting confusing, where they start showing you pages and they say, look here, and you go, oh yeah, I see that. Identify the document, identify the exhibit number so that when I'm looking at the package of exhibits, I know what page you're looking at. And so that is all very helpful to me uh, in doing that. Uh, a couple of uh, yeah, okay. a couple of uh, quick points here. So one of the frequently recurring issues that that I've had are uh, timely notifications to the parties when you've reached your judgments or your um, uh, rulings. I suppose typically doesn't happen in eviction cases because if it's not at the fault, the parties right there if they've gotten to surrender your, your judgment, the five days is ticking and, and they kind of know it and they either make the deadline or they don't make the deadline. But when you have something under advisement and then you get that ruling out, according to the statute, when it's entered into the docket, that's when the 14 days starts to tick. Um, and I have seen a number of times where uh, it's not mailed out till five or six days later, uh, and then I don't know how long it sits at the post office, I don't know how long it sits in the out basket, where the clerk said, okay, I mailed it on Friday the 7th, but actually it's not going out until Monday the 10th, whatever it is, and people miss their deadline. And that case and the construction up there, I throw that up there because it's a uh, 1980s opinion of Justice Cameron where uh, there was a late notice from the uh, Justice Court, and in those days it was 10 days, and uh, but he said, you know, because it's such a short deadline and because people have the right to appeal, if you could show that it was impossible to file timely because of late notice, then, in theory, the Superior Court on the appeal has the ability to relieve the party of that failure to uh, appeal within now 14 days. Um, that takes a lot of fast. I have sent one case back, and, and I watched the FCR when it came back, or I listened to the recording anyway, 
And it was like, I've never done this before because the guy was playing well. I went and they told me the building was closed because the air conditioning wasn't on and I have the notes of the board administrator. And it's like, I'm not going to hold an evidentiary hearing and start subpoenaing or requiring your board administrator to come to the office. So I sent it back down. They had the hearing. Everybody was kind of like, this is the first, and it probably was. Turns out the dates were wrong in that letter. The building wasn't closed that day. It was closed the week after or something like that. And it was like, well, I'm glad we got all this straightened out. It actually had the hearing uh, down there. And now it's back up, and, and I'll have to figure out what to do on that. But it's, what am I trying to say? Please exhort your staff to get those mailings out so that people get timely notice of your under advisement rulings so that they can timely appeal if that's what they're going to choose to do. But some of these DMV issues are complicated and I hate to send things back down for you guys to give me dates so then I can come up and figure out was it impossible for them to uh, I think an issue with the lawyers is very litigious and likes taking everything to appeal. With an eviction, and he didn't like um, one of my decisions. That, although it was just an easy last night, it was just a default judgment that I signed. He got it the day of the 14th day, and he says because he didn't open the mail for a couple of days, therefore he <laughs> actually used that as a. Right. But he did. He did admit he got it on the 14th day. And I don't know how I would rule on that until it came up in, in front of me. And I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to do the you know, federal uh, uh, interview at the Senate. I, I'm not going to comment on cases that could possibly come in front of me one day. Uh, so, uh, but that's an issue for, I think, the Superior Court to decide if it's a timely appeal or not. I don't think that's an issue that you guys decide. And I don't think I didn't open my mail for a couple days without a defense. No, he waited two months to make this defense. Now, is he coming to you like on a motion to set aside? That's your discretion. Yeah. Like, that's not a timely appeal issue, because uh, apparently he didn't even try to appeal. I think we've all said that. Yeah. I mean, that's up to you whether you want to set it aside or not, and if you don't set it aside, and he, he can appeal the denial of the set aside or vacate. And then I review that under an abuse of discretion standard, and, and I'll just go from there. That's... It, that's a different legal question in my mind, whether or not it was impossible for him to appeal. I routinely grant the statements of time to appeal. Um, are those our motions? Are those really your motions? Should, um, I someone, don't know. See, uh, if someone follows us, you know, I, I mean, it's all the notice of appeal. And if that's timely, yeah, the, the notice of appeal is timely. Okay, but, but they they're about to blow the deadline for the appellate. Oh yeah, I think the rules clearly say you guys can do that. You routinely do it for your own cases. Yeah, um, we're well, supposed to do it. Another well, judge is supposed yeah, to have another judge do it. Yeah, yeah. one of one of our strange rules. Yeah, if you get a motion to continue the time to file an appellate brief, the trial judge cannot rule on that motion. You have to have a different judge rule on that. You have to walk down the hall and have another judge sign it. Well, I don't think you need to wait to see Judge Russell's class. It just says a judge other than the child. Yeah, it doesn't say the provider shall. All of the time we review themselves. We have a different person. Yeah, yeah. So you need to expect, you know, what if you just accept it because it's going to be late? 
I have had to, because the rule says that uh, the rule is written um, in mandatory language, and I've had lawyers make this argument, uh, that uh, the appeal shall be perfected, and if it's not perfected within the time limits, that it must be dismissed. So it's written in mandatory language. There are all these safety valves and escape valves, but the language itself is mandatory. I have had the lawyer say, it was three days late, you have to dismiss this appeal. I didn't, and I wrote my reasoning why, but lawyers will make that argument. I don't think you have to. I think it's within your discretion, uh, particularly since, uh, other than the timely filing of the notice of appeal, all the rules can be suspended for good cause, extensions can be granted for good cause. So you have to go through the means of having another judge sign up on it. And I have had a lawyer make the argument that because some other judge didn't do it, the act was invalid, and therefore the appeal should have been dismissed. So, you know, it didn't get very far with me, but they will make the argument. So. Uh, unintended final judgments, and, and this has come up recently, which is why it's in my, my uh, slide here. So... The case law is a judgment is anything signed by the judge that finally resolves all of the issues among all of the parties. That's an appealable judgment. Some uh, 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 of us, and, and I'm probably guilty of this too, we're used to signing everything. And I have had rulings that were signed and then a judgment was issued later said exactly the same thing. And the argument that was made to me was the appeal was untimely because the appealable judgment was that signed ruling, even if it's electronically signed. It had the attorney's fees awarded. It had the damages awarded. There was literally nothing left to do. And they, the argument that was made was the reason it was reduced to a judgment was to make collection easier, whatever that is. I've never done collections. I've never done garnishment. So I have no idea if that was just blown close my way or, or not. And therefore, I should count the time from when that minute entry ruling was issued as the start of the 14-day clock and not when the final judgment was issued. And so, and, and there's one of the new hand, the handouts that you just got now, that one page one, there's a comparison between the Justice Court Rule of Civil Procedure and the Arizona Rule of Civil Procedure. So under the Arizona Rules of Civil Procedure, there's actually what I call magic words that are entered into judgments that make them appealable, right? When a judge says this is intended to be final. The Justice Court Rule of Civil Procedure doesn't have that rule. It, it kind of has a mirror rule where if it isn't resolving all of the issues among all of the parties or one of those two things, but you still want to make it final so that some other party can take an appeal because maybe they're done with the case, then there are magic words you can put in that judgment. But if you sign a minute entry ruling that effectively is resolving all of the issues, that may start, and maybe you didn't intend it to, but I don't know that your intent is controlling. I think the document is controlling, at least that's how I read the case law. And so be careful of so the bottom line. Be careful of what you're starting, uh, because you may end up starting a clock on somebody's appeal when nobody really thought that was happening, some lawyer figures it out, and then I have to decide if the appeal starts 
A or, you know, A plus 20. Not that many of us do minute entries, but all of us find ruling on motion form. Mm-hmm. And so there's a ruling on motion form, we grant the summary judgment, um, and then the judgment filed maybe a month later. Mm-hmm. Um, does the appeal time run from the granting of the summary judgment motion? If it just says I'm granting the summary judgment motion, I wouldn't grant that as okay. the thing. In this particular case, the money was there, the figures were there, and even the language of, and if the party wishes to submit a form of judgment, I'll sign it. That was, that was the, so it wasn't even you must submit a form of judgment, it was like, you felt like it. So for all intents and purposes, the case could have ended with that signed ruling, and that was the attorney's argument. It did end with that signed ruling. The judgment was a mere formality, and there is case law out there that says a final judgment that adds nothing, and it really is just a repeat of an earlier one, doesn't create a new judgment for the time of appeal. So they found all that case law, and it's like, ugh. So just something to be aware of. Don't unintentionally create final judgments that may inadvertently start somebody's appeal clock ticking if that's not what you intend to do. Uh, what's the best practice be to grant the motion and then say the prevailing party shall submit a form of judgment within 14 days or make it mandatory? Because at least that document, I think. A, as I said earlier, your intent isn't uh, controlling. I guess what I should say is your unexpressed intent is not controlling. If you put it in the document, then I think the document controls, and that's what I would point to. All right. Um, Clear record. So this is something we we already uh, talked about. Identify documents. uh, Identify um, images uh, that you're looking at. Uh, please make sure the documents are marked Defendant's Exhibit 1, Plaintiff's Exhibit 1, because sometimes they don't get marked and, and I'm trying to figure out uh, which document uh, is admitted. Um, when you're dealing with lawyers, I know many of you, if not all of you, want all in a perfect world. Documents are pre-marked, you know, what they're going to be, so you're not taking all that time up, up, up at, uh, at the trial. Uh, but please make sure it's clear whether or not you've admitted the document as evidence or it's just been offered into evidence. Because uh, lawyers will forget to say, I'm moving this into admission, and then all of a sudden you're talking about it. And so, well, he impliedly admitted it, so I guess it's part of the record. Uh, but, but please remember to admit something or not to admit something if it's, if it's been offered uh, to you. Uh, photographs. But I've had a, a few issues with this. Uh, photographs need to become part of the record uh, somehow. Uh, and I know you've all had, look at this, Judge. <laughs> and, and I know some of you said, if you want me to take your phone and make it part of the record and, and, and put it in the court file, I will look at it. And then they all go, huh. So, you know, be aware of that. Uh, same thing with recordings and text messages. At least the recordings, they can be played, and if you get them close enough to the microphone, they'll make the FCR, and at least I'll be able to hear them. Text messages, if, if you want the party to read them, if you want to read them into the record, if you want the lawyer to read them into the record, you know, that may be a way of doing it, because I know, especially on the injunctions against harassment or OTs, everybody's got text messages going back and forth that prove that the other side's the devil. You know, get them into the record somehow, 
so that I can at least see what it is you're seeing. Um, parties have come with disks or thumb drives, uh, and then those are dutifully marked and put in an envelope and sent up to me, and I have been uh, 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 threatened with digital uh, what's the repercussions by my IT people if I take that thumb drive and stick it to my <laughs> computer. I don't know what to do about that. That's a logistic area. Computer that you only use I don't have one of those. I don't know, but that is a good possible solution. It's basically isolated from the network that can't break. And maybe that must be the important thing here is that you actually use the phrase air gap to know also like, ooh. <laughs> I, I, I didn't say air gap, did I? Tell me what that means. <laughs> right, right. Just totally, you know, so basically I should bring the old laptop I have at home that I haven't gotten rid of yet and just plug it in, make sure the Wi-Fi is off, and just plug it into that. So we can't um, send up CDs and thumb drives. So I think are CDs an issue? I mean, the same concept. There is something that... And I don't know if your IT people have the same yeah, thing. Yeah, we have the same Well, we're doing the things they were describing. So if we can be helpful for you to get something that is offline or, what was the term? Is, is sometimes it's an eviction case. The house is, is so 
untapped that it's become a, a, a health and safety issue. Look at these photos, and I see you're looking at the photos. I get copies of them, and they're basically black. I can't see a thing. I have to send that back down and say, I don't know what the rule is for transmitting the, the real exhibit. I don't, I don't know if there is a rule about that. But I can't say that unless the judge describes what they're seeing, and if the description is good enough, I will go with it. But if there's, uh-huh, 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 oh yeah, yeah, I find that this was a material violation of the lease, blah, 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 and that's the end of it, and then the pictures come back up to me, I have no choice but to send it down, because I think I have to see the pictures just to make sure that you weren't bothered by a speck of dust. I know it sounds like you're not getting the original photos. I'm not getting, uh, I don't, in the normal course of human events, I don't think I want the original photos, because they can get lost from here to there. But I don't know what to do well, in that situation. We don't scan, normally we shouldn't be scanning in the original photos, because they don't scan well. Mm-hmm. And so we're supposed to keep them in a separate... What are the printed though? If they were printed, then we, if you get the original photos, your folks are supposed to keep it in a separate office. In a separate place. And, yeah. and I have gotten original photos right. before. And, so and they, they are in the separate office. Because they're, right. not part of, they're not part of our scanned record. Right, right. But I have gotten Xerox or scanned however photos. That and, was uh, the one that they just emailed. Yeah, and sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes they're just not useful for purposes of review, for me to be able to see it. And if they're critical, like in that particular instance, you know, some, a lot of times they're not that critical, but if they're critical, I think I need to see them. So, whatever we get to do with that. Alright. Uh, the trial procedure. So, so, this goes to a little bit of what we were talking about, about perceptions of fairness how people are, you know, watchdogs, the press is watching what we're doing. So some of what I'm going to talk about uh, um, uh, goes to that issue. Uh, so what do I do? I, I generally am looking to see if basic trial procedures are, 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 are being followed. And the advice I will give to you uh, for what it's worth is by following the rules and following formalities, you create the appearance of fairness. You create the perception of fairness, and maybe you blunt a little bit some of this press, oh, oh it's, it's a rubber stamp, it's a kangaroo court, everything's done in 30 seconds, or something like that. Um, but the question is, how far do you go with proper? You have an attorney on one side, you have a proper on the other side, and civil theory. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I had one proper who was illiterate, was, you know, so it was very difficult for him to understand anything. And for him to write down, you know, motions would have been almost impossible. Right. So what do you do in the circumstance because we're supposed to have fair, you know, justice? So, and I am not an expert in judicial ethics. It is a fine line, obviously, between advocating for a party or helping the party advocate. But there is a, and I, I apologize for not having it tabbed here, there is a canon of judicial ethics. There's a comment to that canon that says it's not a violation of judicial ethics to, I can't remember if the word is help or aid or take steps, but to take some reasonable measures 
that ensure that a self-represented person has the opportunity to be heard. doesn't define what that means. I'm not aware of any ethics opinion. So it's in the rule. It's in rule. It's in court rule in two. And if you take a break, I'll look for it because I had occasion to refer to it a couple of times now. So the, the, the canons themselves say you can take some measure of steps to ensure that a self-represented person is heard. And we do have a Arizona uh, Supreme Court award-winning best practice on dealing with self-represented and I did all the research on case law when I did the class last year for people conference, and the case law, you're going to get in trouble for not doing enough for them more than you're going to get in trouble for doing too much. You don't want to be a defendant's advocate. No, no, no. Without being an advocate, as long as you understand that you're not advocating, you will not... Right. You, you, no. And I'm saying... The case law bears out that you do not get in trouble for helping them advocate, yeah. as long as you're not advocating for them. And you're not advocating, you want to make the right decision for the right reason. And that's exactly what I do. And you want to make sure that they are given a chance to give their side in understanding what their side can be and how to articulate that. And here's the comment I was thinking of. Uh, so this is comment number four to um, our our Judicial Ethics Rule 2.2, which is found in, I misspoke before, it's found in Rule 81 of the Rules of the uh, Arizona Supreme Court. So comment four reads this. It is not a violation of this rule, and the rule is impartiality and fairness. It is not a violation of this rule for a judge to make reasonable accommodations to ensure self-represented litigants the opportunity to have their matters fairly heard. Don't know what that means. I, I don't have all the details. You know, that's where the devil always is, right? In the details. But at least there's something that empowers you to take some reasonable measures, especially when you have the unlevel playing field that you're describing, that the self-represented person at least has their matter fairly heard. Well, a lot of times when the attorney is speaking, they don't understand a word of what they're saying. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you try to decipher it for them, then are you then giving your opinion? And so it's, it's I would say no. I would say you're measuring things, but I don't understand. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. Because they walk away understanding what happens. And if you don't understand what's happening, you cannot exercise your rights. Therefore, that's just what's there. Like when you ask them, do you have any objection to me admitting this photograph? Yes. And so you can tell, you can object because you think that they didn't really take the picture or that the picture doesn't show what they're saying it shows. No, and that's not advocating for me, just telling them. No, but if I have a situation where the attorney is using, you know, multi-syllable words and the individual truly does not understand what they're saying. You just need to tell them to speak up if they don't understand and have the attorney fight. I, I guess the question is, if the attorney says something, you feel comfortable restating it? I would say no. Okay, that's right. Down there, as I understand, you're trying to say blah, 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 blah. And you can always go back to the attorney and say, is what I just said fair, counselor. If they all agree on the record, okay, yeah. you're fine. They don't know how. They don't know how. They don't know how. They don't know how. So when I was teaching the, the phrase, I, and, and I'm not suggesting you use this with a lawyer, but, but maybe it's the idea of what I'm trying to convey. And, you know, m my goal for my students was 
you don't need to use legalese and million dollar words to be a good lawyer. Indeed, one of the hardest jobs of a lawyer is to take the complicated legal stuff and put it into plain language. So I would ask my students when they were arguing, explain it to me as if I were your 16-year-old high school brother. Doesn't have a legal education. Tell me what it is you want and why you think you're entitled to it. I don't know that you could say that to the lawyer. Maybe some of you are comfortable enough with your positions to do that. I know I'm not. But that would be the goal, right, is to get them to talk that way. And, and hopefully that that, you know, is enough for the self-represented person. And maybe it is and maybe it isn't. But obviously that's the goal that you're trying to get at. How you get there, I can't tell you how you get there. But trying to get there is what we're trying to do. Um, so, I, uh, I have seen a few times, not, not much in recent times, uh, bench trials at the bench. Um, and, and the problem with bench trials at the bench is they don't look a whole lot like trials. They look a lot like Solomon dispensing wisdom, which is all fine and good, but that's not what we're here for, and that's not what we're doing. And, and people who are watching are seeing that. And I know it's convenient, and I know it helps manage the docket flow, and all of those are important things. Uh, but sending the parties and witnesses back to their tables is, is useful in a number of ways. One, that's where your microphones are, and I can hear everybody. Because what sometimes happens at them trials is there's the one microphone at the bench, right? And it's in front of you, and then you have a party over there, and you have a party or a witness over there, and I can make out every third or fourth word. And sometimes, and this is not a criticism, just, just, just imparting some facts, you're moving papers around, and those papers are right near your microphone, and that's all I'm hearing are shuffle, 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 because you're going through whatever documents have been given to you, which is great, but you're drowning out the other guy. If everybody's at their microphone, uh, on my FPR controls, I can actually raise and lower the level of each microphone. So if you're going through papers while the party is talking, I can lower your mic, and I can raise theirs, and I can hear what they're saying and not be, uh, have it overridden. But if you're all talking out of that one microphone, I can't do that. So that's one reason to send everybody back to their mic. If a trial starts on accident, sometimes I make some things from one very quick to the other. It's the best practice to start over, clean space, and back to microphone. So we can do that. And we, we usually... I mean, you can. Um, and so basically, from what I'm hearing you're saying is, you, you can't know if I've been able to cure everything that's gone forth. Uh, you know, and I, I don't want, you know, if it's gone on for 20 minutes, so I want you to go back and repeat a whole 20 minutes worth of testimony. I don't want to say yes. Uh, how well is your equipment working? Where was the microphone? Do you test your equipment every day? I mean, I, you know, when we go up, just before we do any hearings in our courtroom, staff goes out and does each microphone and somebody's in the FCR room and they're listening. I don't know that you have the staff or the resources to do that, uh, but that's what we do because we don't have a court reporter there and we'll be lying on the FCR. Uh, but can you check it once a day maybe? I don't know. 
Uh, you know, a lot of times, this, this, I, I shouldn't say a lot, sometimes it's been crackly and, and it's a lot of static and I don't know if that's a loose wire, it's old equipment, I realize it's all county equipment and I understand all that, but I don't know how you can test for that. Um, oh, if, if you can, yes, go back and start over, because then you'll ensure that the record is clear and, and you would have reduced, you know, gee, I, I missed all this cross-examination or I missed, you know, this, this, this whatever evidence this should be shown. And once again, we do have a best practice on uh, bench trials, or not doing bench trials at the bench, uh, to send them back to the table. One of the, I mean, we do that for a couple of reasons, because Susan or the Judicial Conduct Commission will get a complaint saying, I never got a trial, and we were responsible for that trial for 30 seconds we spent up at the bench. The irony is, for a civil traffic matter, everyone seated at tables would have received somewhat formally for a $150 fine, uh, and contrast that with evicting someone and making them homeless in 30 seconds up at the bench, which which should actually deserve more procedure. Do you just tell the lawyers who have come to cap themselves at all over the You can move it to the end of the, to the docket as well. That's true. And, and frequently that's a good tool with the help. If you're part way in and you're not sure how clear the record is, do the rest of your evictions and then they can start over. Send them back. Say, we've got other people who are waiting. Let's get them through. We're going to give you the time that you need for whatever your matter is. But then it's a natural break and it's normal to start at the beginning again. And, and I realize a lot of you do in the eviction cases, and, and I think this is appropriate. Forgive me if I'm saying something against the best practice. But I think the Rule 11 provision at the beginning can be done at the bench. You know, the, the, the landlord says you didn't pay October's rent. Did you pay it? No, I didn't have the money. Sounds like there are no triable issues to me because they're not really going up for it. They're admitting there's a lease. They're admitting they didn't pay the rent. It's, it, it's the sad story that you're reading about in the newspaper, but that's all a Rule 11 proceeding, and I recognize that as such. But it's when, no, no, I paid the rent, or I, I paid half, and he took the half of the rent. Uh, and, and said it was okay, and I didn't say that. That sounds like it needs to be tried. No, sure, and those are the things I was like, I didn't get like, okay, so we'll move on. Well, I was out there before I'm going to do the other Oh, wait, now there's an issue now. We're going you know, did you send notice? And yeah, I mean, right, you can get yeah, it. Yeah, but the fact, but then the lawyer will say, well, I don't have all of my witnesses here. But even though the statute says that that, that the arraignment becomes a trial, you can continue it up to three days. Because that's why you only have three days, yes. But then you charge the, the defendant has brought their witnesses, but the lawyer has uh, And so I what I do, I tell the lawyers I can't charge the, if they're not prepared. They don't bring the necessary things that they need to because the statute actually says you need to have all these documents there for a trial and an arraignment. So well, the new law has been that now. The new says you're encouraged at the initial appearance to hold the trial. But you only have encouragement, it's not a requirement. That's the first part. I so then the third part, the next part is you can't do the three days. The question you have to ask is are you treating both sides the same? Not if somebody has other witnesses and the other person hasn't. 
um, witnesses uh, were at the table, and you know they said their thing, and they said their thing, and no cross examination, no lawyer. So these are both self-represented individuals. Judge didn't ask. Do you want to ask the other side any questions? And so, and, I, and in this particular case that I'm thinking about, I'm not even sure it would have made a difference. But there was no cross-examination or an opportunity given for cross-examination. But nobody asked for cross-examination either. They, they, they each wanted to tell their side of the story. And so the, the question I'd be faced with now, was that a trial? Was that really a trial? So I don't think there's anything wrong about asking, do you want to ask the other side any, any questions? You don't have to ask any questions, but if you have questions, now's your time to ask them and see where it goes. Because um, otherwise, I'm not sure a basic trial was had. And it was an eviction case. Uh, and I'm not sure a basic trial was had in that situation. Order of protection here? In other words, the I think they can. I think they have to be allowed to ask questions. That's the whole purpose of the because the order of protection says that it, it's not a violation, I don't remember the exact verbiage, but it's not a violation of the order of protection to have contact with the protected party through court process, through attorneys, and I forget what the other examples are. So I don't think that, and, and I have seen where judges will say, because the parties are really, you ask your question to me, I will ask it to the other side. And if you do it verbatim and you're not changing the question, I don't think that's a violation either. Because they're still getting their question answered. They're, you're still watching their demeanor while they're answering the question. So I think the rule is being served. I don't know that that should be the default position. Uh, but if you have really intense parties where you know the minute they start looking at each other, they're not going to hold it together. I think that's a reasonable method of controlling the questioning of witnesses so that the court process can proceed. Yeah, I, I felt that maybe because it was a domestic violence situation where mm -hmm. the guy was kind of controlling over the female, the lady, or whatever, or significant other. And I think I did that. I was trying to remember right now what I did. It right. real uncomfortable, but I said, you know what, you answer to our question. And, and, and if you think that that's the, what you have to do in order to maintain order in the, in the, in the courtroom, I don't think that's a problem. Hypothetically, in a protective order hearing where parties are having such a hard time, even after repeatedly um, explaining how to ask questions, they just cannot ask questions on spots, they're making statements, they're just... Now, just, you just cut it off at a certain point and just say, hey, you know what, you're forfeiting your own death. So this process is going to make sense. And if, you, if, if that's clear and you say that, I don't have a problem with that. Okay. If, if, if you can't control yourself, ma'am, and just ask questions rather than testifying, I'm going to give you your chance to testify, but your question-asking period is going to be over. 
Uh, objections. Please rule on objections. Uh, uh, you know, as clearly as you can. Uh, I, I've had, you know, where objections are made, and I don't know what your ruling was because there was no ruling. Uh, please don't allow testifying objections, and this is common with uh, uh, self-represented parties as opposed to lawyers. Objection! That's a lie! <laughs> that's not an objection, that's counter-testimony. And they will get their chance to tell why it's a lie, but, you know, and you have to explain that to them. And and some of you I have I have seen, and, and, and I think it's a, it's a point. So, uh, they're trying to admit document A. Can you, do you have a reason, Mr. Self-Represented Person, why I should not see document A and think about it? You're going to get to tell me what you think about document A when it's your turn to talk. But is there some reason document A shouldn't even be in the courtroom? And again, they may say because it's a fraudulent document, and then you could say, all right, well, we'll get to that later and get to it. But, uh, so... Try that, uh, if some of you do that with success. Right. Or, you know, you don't even have to use the word overruled. You could just say, it's still going to come in, you're going to be able to tell me it's a lie later. <laughs> I'll know what you've done. So, I don't need the legalese, uh, but, 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 but I do want you to articulate what you've done with that objection. I just find that helpful. Uh, telephonic witnesses, I, I know in some of the local rules, they, uh, or the city court rules, they have actual rules on it, and, and some of the rules that we use have, obviously it's up to your discretion, um, and I know some of you have issues with the, uh, veracity is not the right word, but is it really the person on the phone, and, and are they being coached, and things like that. Uh, the only thing that I care about, can I hear them? Uh, that's the only thing I care about in terms of, you know, whether you decide to let them in or not, that's your career. Do you have using telephone equipment? I believe you do. In all cases. Is there a best practice on using it? Yeah. So, you know, you're going to have to deal with, uh, deal with that in your discretion. Uh, I just need to be able to hear what it is they're saying. Uh, please don't let people talk over each other again. So, maybe some of you know this and some of you don't. I don't get a written transcript unless the proceeding in front of you is 90 minutes or more. If it's uh, under 90 minutes, I get to watch the FTR. And if they're all talking over each other, you know, I'm hard of hearing as it is, and even playing with the little levers on the FTR controls, I sometimes can't hear everybody. And even if I do get a transcript, I get indecipherable, or I get inaudible, or I get parties talking over each other, and even the transcriptionists can't make out who was saying what. Uh, so, and I know things get heated, but to the extent you can control that, please do. Uh, this last point is just a pet peeve on, on my part, and, and, and is worth just that as a pet peeve. Uh, please have them cite the Justice Court Rules of Civil Procedure, and not the Arizona Rules of Civil Procedure. Uh, I think there are some differences in there to make things more streamlined and easily. And, and a lot of lawyers who practice in superior court and then and then do a justice court matter, they don't seem to even realize that the justice court rules of civil procedure exist. And they just keep citing the Arizona rules. And that bothers me for each deal. I don't know why. Do the Arizona rules of civil procedure speak where the justice court rules are silent? So, my 
And those of you who have been around the beginning of the no, they're just citing the Arizona because they have their forms and that's what they're doing. Uh, they're just cutting and pasting. Yeah, and so. Right, right. Uh, all right. So, um, I am not a DUI. Uh, I was a public defender, but I was at the Federal Defender's Office for about five or six years, and I got one DUI because it happened to happen on the Grand Canyon, and that became a federal CFR offense. And that is my total exposure to DUI practice. Uh, and we didn't even go to trial on that one, uh, which was a shame because I would have got to go to Flagstaff to the magistrate's uh, courtroom up there, but alas, we settled. Um, but I know you have uh, Judge Starr's Molina ruling as part of your materials, and that's a ruling she did earlier this year in March. Um, and, and I've read through it, and I'll point out a couple of things, but I asked Judge Starr if there's uh, anything you want to want me to convey with this. And, and her point was of, of a more general point other than necessarily Molina and DUIs. These are not precedents, right? So her rulings are not precedents. And she's leaving in a few weeks anyway. So she's going to be gone anyway. We're going to all have to deal with Judge Gerlach. We look to the Arizona Court of Appeals decisions. We look to the Arizona Supreme Court decisions. Those are the decisions you ought to be looking at as well. Not what I wrote or not what Judge Starr or Judge Gerlach wrote. So that was the point she wanted me uh, to bring there. Um, so I, 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 I confirmed this with, with Charles. I guess you have a lot of, well, I shouldn't say a lot. You have DUI seminars, go to them. These are complex cases. I've, I've reviewed two now, and fortunately they were relatively discreet legal issues, so I could phone up on the law and, and make my decision. But these are really complicated cases. Uh, and you have lawyers who are doing them a lot, so, so they're familiar with them. If you don't have experience doing them, go to as many seminars as you can, talk to as many other judges who have experience with them. Do you have a whole best practices on DUI? Uh, we have a couple that touch on it, but no. Uh, but these are really complicated cases. Uh, lots of jury issues come up, uh, as you can see in here, uh, refusal. And I don't know if you've had a chance uh, to look through uh, this uh, beforehand, uh, but just the breadth of issues that can come up, uh, particularly if you've got well-trained attorneys who are putting forth not you know, the kitchen sink, but are actually putting forth debatable issues for you to decide. It could get to be a really complicated, and for that reason, fun kind of case, because it won't be the same old, same old uh, kind of thing. When you have Fifth Amendment issues coming up, you have the duplicate or replicate breath testing, the independent blood testing uh, kind of thing. Uh, did they invoke their right to counsel, right? It has to be an unambiguous, unequivocal kind of invitation. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I would have necessarily come out the way Judge Starr did on some of these issues in Molina because I think they were that close and that debatable. Uh, and, and 
So that's another thing. To the extent that you guys have discretion, uh, I am very always mindful of the fact that I'm not supposed to reverse you just because I have done something different. And, and at its, whenever I'm getting to the point, oh, gee, am I going to have to reverse this case? That is a question I always ask myself. Am I thinking about this because I would have done it different? Or am I thinking about this because the law does require some other action to have been taken or something like that? So I am very mindful of that. So, so please bear that in mind if, if, if that happens to happen uh, on there. Uh, what else? Confrontation clause issues with this 911, whether a non testament. I mean, you know, and this is a long opinion for her. So these lawyers presented these issues, uh, I thought, rather well. Uh, striking jurors for cause. Um, is there anything in particular, Charles? Or no, if you want to add stuff, feel free, because I know you've done these. I have not. I just want to, you know, thought that this was a good exemplar of some of the issues that uh, litigious defense attorney can come up with, you know, um, they, uh, at, at uh, the um, suppression hearings. Uh, so there's some really good points in here. Go ahead and read those. We're trying to put together a class in August where uh, we will have Craig Jennings and Chris McBride and uh, Michelle Lucene do an actual evidentiary hearing, a full-blown nasty evidentiary hearing along with dozens of emotions in the middle uh, just so you get some experience on uh, get to watch a uh, full-blown in action. Uh, protective order cases. So these are, uh, we've talked about some of this already, so I won't belabor it other than to uh, just call that to your uh, attention. So the scope of a contested hearing, and this has to go to the earlier question about what witnesses do you allow to testify. And I can't remember if part of the, was that part of the material? Uh, so look at rule 36A in your material. Um, I read that as a mandatory rule. Courts must limit the scope of the uh, evidence that's presented at a protective order hearing. And remember, protective order is a term of art, orders of protection, injunctions against harassment, and workplace injunctions as well are all protective orders. Um, so, you know, even absent an objection, uh, and again, most of the cases I've seen, and I think this is true generally, they're self-represented individuals, even absent an objection, I think it's your independent obligation to limit the scope of the hearing to what's alleged in the petition, uh, because there are some due process uh, concerns uh, about that. Um, um, so what have I done in the past when stuff has come in? Um, if it was the only evidence, I have sent it back and vacated the order. If it was not the only evidence, I have written in the in the opinion, and if it was affirming, it's still in there. You know, this was beyond the scope. There was no objection, but I think this rule is mandatory. I'm not considering it as part of the record, but because there was other sufficient evidence that was legitimately before the court, and that was enough to sustain the order, the order is going to get affirmed. So that's how I end up dealing with that extraneous material coming in. And, and frequently we have to say that in court with self-represented litigants, 
the court understands what is applicable and what is not in this proceeding, please, other side, understand the judge is going to filter out. Right. Um, okay. And if you say that, then I go with that. And, and you don't always say it, but it's a good reminder to be letting people understand because you're also letting somebody who reviews understand. True. Yeah. Are you asking for some more explicit though? I'm asking for express language like that. That helps. So here's where it becomes a an issue for me. If, if some stuff gets in, judges are presumed to know the law. I think you're following the law. That's what I'm going to do. If it becomes a tail that's wagging the dog, and I'm looking at a little bit of legitimate evidence and all this other stuff came in, then I really have to start, you know, this is getting difficult for me uh, to do that. Uh, and if they are going on and on and on, I think you ought to stop them uh, uh, for that reason. If it's a one-off or a two-off, it's not going to make a big difference to me. When it becomes the tail that wags the dog, or in the one case I'm thinking of where the judge actually expressly said, I'm considering X. Uh, that was that was the uh, issue there. Um, so, it's, it's something that's come up a couple of times, and I I um, haven't had to deal with it yet. But I've had some I've seen some uh, proceedings where judges have expressly asked, "Have there been any bio?" So the the order's been issued ex parte. We're now at the contested hearing stage. The judge has asked, have there been any violations of this order since it was issued? And I'm like, hmm, not part of the petition, probably not relevant under Rule 36. Are they asking because they just want to warn the defendant? Are they asking because I know somewhere, and maybe I saw it in the best practices or something, where the judge is supposed to tell the plaintiff, you're option at this point, if you think there was a violation of the order, is to go to the police and let the police investigate it as the crime of interference with judicial proceedings. So it wasn't clear to me why the judge was asking that question, and in that case, there were no alleged violations, so nothing came of that question. But the question kind of threw me for a loop, and I just kind of wanted to throw it out there to the crowd to see what your reactions were. Well, do not ask the defendants, because when you're asking them to incriminate themselves, which they have violated it. But no, it's not relevant. Uh, I see some thinking going on. I'm going to want to read on this. That's a great observation. I struggle with that. I mean, because there could be a legitimate reason to ask that question. Uh, and I'm trying to remember now when this came up in the proceedings. I believe it was right at the beginning of the proceedings, so it was before the evidence was being presented in the contested hearing. Uh, and, you know, fortunately, no, there were no violations, so we just went on. But, but I think it's a tricky question to ask. Um, I wouldn't ask, but it comes up a lot of times, so mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, who they walk in. Right, right. And I've seen that. And I've seen the responses. We can't get into that. If you think there was a violation, you need to go to the police department, and they'll know what to do with that alleged violation. But we are here just to talk about what you wrote in your petition, dated, whatever the date is. And, and I think that's a 
legitimate way of dealing with it. Um, they refile and they cite now that they violation of British and private security. Is that now evidence? As part of the petition? Put in the new petition. You dismissed because the evidence didn't get there. They refiled. He was calling me. That is? I think if it's in the petition, sure. So, so it doesn't close the door? No, I don't think it closes the door. Because, right, the whole purpose of it being in the petition is the defendant has notice, right? As long as the defendant has notice. Fair game. Right. I mean, one of, one of the issues that I've had with, with the program and, and, and I told them is when I go back and listen to the recording phase, when, when they do the original ex parte hearing, they let the, the, the petitioner go on and on and on, telling all these stories. And I'm like, what is the point of letting them talk for 15 minutes if there's only two incidents listed in the petition? Because when the time comes from the hearing, then they're going to come in and say, but I told you last time and I said this, and none of that is, is part of the petition. So the, the way to make it better for all of us is to make sure that the petition is complete. And if there's something missing in the petition, send them back to amend the petition. So that stuff can come in when the time comes for the conducted hearing. And I have started doing that so much more just like, hey, you wrote this. Right. You're telling me this. Go back and amend it. Right. And we'll, we'll talk again. Right. But this, this isn't going to work. Yes. Um, Extra petition material. So I have seen a couple of, of, of instances where somebody wants to bring in something extra petition and, and probably because of one of these types of talks, the judge is very quick to clamp down on it. And, and, and the person is kind of stunned for it. So I, let me throw this out there for, again, for what it's worth, which remember what you're paying for for speaking <laughs> today. Uh, if the person is if something on the petition is we went on a date on October 9th and that happened that was the alleged act of domestic violence but they want to tell you something about October 8th because it tells you how they got to October 9th I think that can come in I don't know uh, it depends on, on whether it's the act or the separate yeah so exactly and um so, I don't know why I throw that out there, but I've seen a couple times where people are like, well, how can I tell my story if I can't tell you how we got went on the date in the first place, right? Because people want to tell a story, and stories have beginning, middles, and endings, right? And, and so, I don't know. Maybe hypersensitivity, I don't know. So, I throw that out there, but uh, obviously you can't control uh, what's in the petition. Rule 38H, which I know is in your materials as well, says that the courts must state the basis for the decision on the record. Um, and um, I find that there was an act of domestic violence or one is likely to occur. I don't know that that's stating the basis. That's stating the legal conclusion. And I know the bench book that AOC has put out kind of suggests this, and so I'm going to disagree with the bench book uh, a little bit. And uh, yes, that's been recorded, so there I am. Um, if, if there's one act of domestic violence alleged, and that's what the testimony was about, and then that's what you say, fine. I know what you're talking about, because we're all on the same team. If there have been a lot of acts, and a lot of denials, and the record's kind of, you know, what was domestic violence, or maybe even more injunctions against harassment, because that's trickier, right? What's harassing? And is a person going to, a reasonable person, going to be seriously alarmed, annoyed, or harassed 
those kind of self defining. If there are a bunch of them, I, I think you need to say, I would like for you to say, I should say, you know, making 20 text messages in a span of four minutes after being told, please don't text me again, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, and, and that, to me, is what a basis is on there. Yeah, there's like four allegations in the petition. I'll go through and say, hey, this one did qualify as a seriously alarming, annoying, or harassing with no legitimate purpose. This one didn't, this one did, this one didn't. And then, therefore, right. And as long as that one's sufficient, we're golden. And, and, and that's it. So please help in that respect. Uh, again, if it's a simple allegation, he punched you in the face and, and, and we're husband and wife or we're dating or we have a child together or something, great. I know exactly what you're talking about. Some of these complicated petitions, you believe some, you don't believe others, you're not going to make a finding on some because you don't have to because the ones that you have found on are sufficient. So you don't have to decide if, if the taking a photograph from the defendant's own property, photographing you while you're out in front of your house, is that harassing? I've seen IAH appeals that way, and people complain about that, but he didn't touch your property. But if there's some other thing that they've done, you don't have to decide if that taking a photograph is a harassing act or not, which means I don't have to decide if it's a violation of free speech or not, or anything like that and just find what you need to find and tell me about it. So that would be helpful. Another reason it comes up is, uh, so I cited the Cross case there. Um, and so what Cross says is when a judge is required to make factual findings, and this was in a, was this in the family? I forget in what, the, I think by statute in that case, the judge was required to make findings of fact. The Court of Appeals said, we will not assume that, that the Court of Appeals said we will not indulge in the presumption that the judge found all the necessary facts uh, that are necessary to sustain this judgment because there was a statutory duty to articulate those findings. The judge didn't conform to that, and it was the Supreme Court judge in that case, didn't conform to that statutory duty. We can no longer indulge in that presumption of implied findings. So I read that and I go, huh, so how does that work with Rule 38H? There's no case law on it. I don't know. Uh, but I read 38H as an obligation to articulate your findings and your basis. And now I have to, if I'm going to be intellectually honest, I have to ask myself, do I indulge in the presumption that you've made all the implied findings when you have, at least in my view, an obligation to state your findings? I, I have push hasn't come to shove yet on that, so you know, <laughs> avoid the issue and just make your fun if you can. Um, How would that impact a criminal case going forward for a violation of protective order? In the interim prior to appeal, that, that they violate the order? I think once the order is issued, it's issued. And the defendant, I mean, because I had a case that Charles was partly involved in where. The order of protection, or was an injunction against harassment? Or was it a protective order? I forget which. It was up on appeal. Defendant went and violated it. He succeeded in his appeal in getting the order overturned, but because he violated it while it was still on appeal, his defense on appeal of the criminal conviction was, well, you overturned it. Too bad, so sad. 
uh, it's still a violation. So I think once it's issued, it's issued. There is a provision in Rule 5A for third-party you know, third plaintiffs on there. Uh, so basically, you might have a situation where uh, a parent might be seeking a protective order against a friend of their underage child. Um, again, I've, I've seen judges uh, uh, do it differently. You know, if the child is 16 or 17, maybe you want to hear from that child. If the child is 10 or 11, yeah, I guess it's up to you how you want, want to deal with it. So, the bottom line is, is please put on the record some, again, unless it's a parent from the pleading somehow, please put on the record why this third-party plaintiff is a proper third-party plaintiff, just so I know that that, that T was crossed and that I was dotted. Um, Minors, right, uh, basic rule, or the, the clear letter rule, rather, anybody under 12 is the defendant. Juvenile court has exclusive jurisdiction there to uh, issue uh, protective orders uh, against those. Remember, minors as protected persons, if it's the defendant's own child, you have to make specific findings, and, and those are set forth in the rule, what findings you have to make. And so make sure there's evidence about those. If it's a child unrelated to the defendant, then you don't need to make those specific findings. Um, here's a new issue that has come up, and I would ask you to look at Rule 5B uh, in your materials there. And take a moment to read 5B. And by 5B, I mean all of it, B1 and B2. that has come up is, is 5B in and of itself, forgetting 1A and B and forgetting 2, is 5B in and of itself an independent source of authority for you to add adults on to protective orders as protected parties? 
Whereas 5B restricted to the B1 and B2 situations where you're dealing with minors. I cannot find any case law on this issue. Um, I can't find any comments or in the rule petition changes or anything on this issue. And so it's come up with, what do you do when you have adults who want to be protected parties, but they're not getting their own petition? And there's nothing in the record. Why can't, you know, and they're not in the hospital. They're not, you know, uh, uh, serving overseas. You know, there's nothing in the record about why they can't come to court as their own proper plaintiff. Isn't that the way to your argument? If they are a party that can come to court, don't they have the obligation to come? I mean, if, if to be a plaintiff requires to participate. And I have had uh, um, articulated to me, no, 5D gives you all the discretion to put in an adult for some good reason other than they can't come to court because they're in a hospital bed somewhere or they're serving or they're on duty as a cop. Or so we wouldn't be violating our discretion thing so if they can come to court, they have to come to court. I would be fine with that. But so the, it, it's an issue that has come up a couple of times. I think it comes up in roommate situations. I don't know how you all want to deal with that. How are you going to put that on the record? How, and, and, and the problem comes in, somebody comes in and says, oh yeah, so the situation I was given, it's a divorce situation. And the plaintiff comes in and says, oh yeah, the in-laws want to be on the order too. And you go ahead and put the in-laws on the order. And then the in-laws come in and say, I don't want to be on the order. I'm not taking sides of this divorce. I like them both, or I hate them both, whatever the situation is. And the problem with that is the in-laws are not parties, so if you look at the protective order rule, they actually have no standing to request to be removed from the, the order. They can't come in as a protected person? No. If they were in the rules, does it say a protected person can request a hearing? Yeah. So, well, why do I bring them both? I throw this out to you with this. Exercise caution when you are adding adults on as protected parties without some basis for why they can't come to court on their own. What's that? Yeah, right. Physically disabled, uh, uh, you know, or uh, you know, maybe they don't have a guardian, but but they but they have some mental uh, disabilities, or, or just put some reason on the record why this adult can be a protected party, even though they haven't come to court and they're not a party. And I think you have to have allegations in the petition as to why they are victims of either harassment or domestic violence. Which is covered by one that what you say says child, but are you able to find the adult as well? Right. Right. So, I don't really understand how full does not, would not carry any weight. If they're not in court, you know, so... And the response to that is if they live in the same household, I'm protecting the household, so while they're in the household, they are protected. If that person wants to be protected elsewhere, they can come into court and ask for it. Okay. I have a question on the alleged acts of domestic violence. <coughs> the 
Well, I guess, so A, I'm not aware of any case law off the top of my head on that. B, the argument I could make is, if they've witnessed domestic violence, then they've witnessed disorderly conduct, and disorderly conduct is one of the list of offenses, if I remember correctly, as being a crime of domestic violence. Right. Right. Because they were involved, because they are, they are now a victim of disorderly conduct. That's how... To me, that's a straight-faced argument. A person in front of you was... I didn't hear what you said. Oh, okay. Right. My argument was, the reason I denied it was, So, uh, 
one thing that has come up uh, are the housing assistance payments, and um, I'll talk about that, and the retaliation presumptions. So I will talk about that as well, uh, too. Uh, let me talk first about the housing assistance. Cause, so I issued a ruling last uh, fall uh, that said when a landlord accepts a housing assistance payment directly from the housing assistance agency, and makes no, uh, well, what did I say? So I actually dropped a footnote. There was no, uh, the landlord didn't even raise the issue that they repudiated it, tried to repudiate it, or in some way tried to reject it. Never even came up. So I said, this court has no occasion to consider what happens when that case happens. I said that was an acceptance of partial rent. And I did a plain language kind of analysis. And uh, if I'm wrong, the legislature will let me know. Well, the legislature has let me know. Uh, so HB 2358 is making its way through. Mm -hmm. the multi-housing you know. Uh, what's that? Multi-housing you know. Association of what you know. Yeah, uh, probably are, they are the ones who did that, yes. Uh, no so that, what's that? There's no problem. <laughs> that bill has made its way. Uh, I, I, it hasn't been signed yet, uh, but, but it's specifically exempt. Uh, uh, um, housing assistance payments when a landlord accepts it, it does not trigger the partial uh, acceptance of statute in 1371. So the state doesn't have to be I don't think the statute says that. It just says it doesn't trigger it. So I don't know whether they get to keep it or not. I guess that's between them and the agency. But I, I, there's been a rule change since then, too. There's been a rule change that says you guys are supposed to ask the question, right? Right. This is a third party. This is a landlord. Right. Right. Yeah, this is the government's responsibility to pay this part. Right. It's a business responsibility to pay this part. Right. Uh, so I didn't think the rule change, A, I'm not sure the rule change was in effect at the time it wasn't. of this case. B, I'm not sure it answered my question. Uh, which I, I just looked at the statute. It said what rent was. It said what partial acceptance was. And I'm supposed to follow the plain language of the statute because I'm not a legislator. And so I did what I thought was the plain language of the statute. And the multi-housing uh, uh, lobby is, has corrected it. And the legislature has changed it. So, uh, but but I don't know that the legis I don't know that the statute addresses whether it has to be returned or not. I can't recall that language in there. But look at the bill. Don't quote me on that because I can't remember off the top of my head. But I just want to let you know that, that that statutory change was at least progressing through the legislature uh, there. Um, statutory presumption of retaliation. So nine times out of ten, the the, the tenant is not going to say. He retaliated against me, and therefore there's the presumption under 3313, whatever the statute is. I don't remember off the top of my of my head. So you've got to be listening for the facts, right? Did they make a complaint to the housing agency? Did they make a complaint to the landlord? And I think it's six months from the from the act of the the landlord's act. It's a bursting presumption, and if, if for those of you who are familiar with that concept. I don't know if that's come up in any of the evidentiary seminars that you had. I read the statute as a bursting bubble. So once the landlord puts forth some evidence of a non-retaliatory purpose, the presumption disappears. 
That's how I read the statute. It, it no longer gets weighed in there. But you read the statute however you want to read the statute. It, it's written in English. Uh, so you look like you have a question. So I, I, I recognize that look from my students. What are you talking about? I've never heard the term bursting before. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I, I, rebuttal presumption is what. Right, right. And yeah, I, I, you know, misremembering as I am going to do. Uh, so you've got to listen for the facts to see if that's out there. And it applies to non-renewal. Right? There's case law out there, and I can't remember the case off the top of my head, but if you email me, I could probably dig it up relatively easily. So even if, the, if, if this happens, he complains to lieutenant, complains to landlord about not fixing X, and within that time frame, tenant says, well, your lease was expiring, and I decided not to renew you, an Arizona Supreme Court, an Arizona Appellate Court case says that that decision to not renewal is subject to that statutory presumption of retaliation. Do you know which case that was? I can get it for you. I don't know it off the top of my head. Um, and so the landlord has to come up for that presumption not to exist anymore, at least how I read the statute. The landlord has to come up with some non-retaliatory reason why they did not renew this lease. Right? You know, uh, or the, the one in mind was my in-law. But that's for all residential. Is there a couple, several uh, actions? It doesn't have to be just the tenants' association. Right, right. Reported it to uh, code enforcement. Uh -huh. Things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I've always felt that, I mean, if the lease was expired and they didn't want to renew it, they had a right to not renew it. There's not. If, if there was a complaint or a forming of a tenants' association within that statutory right. provision, something, right? But that? You didn't fix something. Right. So then they just say, you know, right. And, and, the, and the case law, as I read it, is it applies to non-renewal. Decisions not to renew a lease that would have otherwise died a natural death. What do you mean? It's disability where I have a woman who's Chinese-American, and I say she's Chinese, she doesn't speak English at all. She has she's forming dementia. Her son lives outside the um, country, and that's it's in his name, and so they're non-renewing it. Does her disability come into play there? As a matter of landlord-tenant law, I, I, I'm not aware of anything. As a matter of, like, the Arizona with Disabilities Act or something like that, I don't know. You literally have to say, because you're Asian or because you're disabled, I'm not renewing really then it becomes a fair But then do you ask, why are they then not renewing? Do they have to give you an answer for that?
I think if the tenant articulates that, because the tenant's not going to utter the magic words retaliatory purpose. Most of them. Some of them they don't speak English in any of dementia. That's what the law says. 
so what does that mean in practice? I don't think you can become their advocate and start searching the record for issues for them to raise. But if they need someone at council table with them who's not a lawyer and they're not going to be asking questions, but they're basically going to get papers for them so that they know what to do with I think we can allow that without fundamentally altering the essential nature of the service. Uh, obviously, they need interpreters to allow them to have the interpreter. Uh, one of the complaints, if it's, if it's in here, was uh, the, the guy who was using the interpreter was saying, well, the judge kept interrupting the interpreter. And when you read the record, that isn't exactly what the judge was actually giving the interpreter a whole lot of control over how fast to let the witnesses testify so the interpreter can interpret. And they would say, witness, please slow down. You're talking faster than I can interpret. I think that was appropriate. So, uh, to tell what you have best practices on. No, I just wanted to, to say a little stronger than you did. Um, we don't allow the interpreter. We are required to provide an interpreter if the party asks for it in any case. So, if, if nothing else, let's do the language line. And also for the ABA, um, make sure your staff doesn't reject an ABA request out of hand. We had an instance a couple years ago where an attorney asked for some uh, for an ABA accommodation and the staff said no, and that's not something we can do. So make sure your staff doesn't do that. And, and I'll just sign in. If you, if you ever get into a situation with respect to a request for an interpreter, and you think you're getting gained, and you want to deny it, it's way more work to deny it legally and properly than, than just get over feeling like you're being gained and, and you want. Okay. Um, it, because to legally go through uh, the questions in order to deny someone an interpreter, it is a huge apple. It can be done. If you ever get into that situation, you're going to have a, a two or three day trial and you want to explore whether it's worth the effort, give me a call and I, I can get you the, that line of questioning that you need to go through. But the default, as Charles said, when someone requests an interpreter, we give them an interpreter, uh, is the way to keep yourself out of trouble and comply with federal law. Where it gets muddy, uh, and, and I don't know if this comes up in gaming situations or not, where they're using the interpreter and then they start speaking English and then they start using the interpreter and the interpreter doesn't know whether to interpret anymore because they're using English and they're not using... I think once you give them the interpreter, I think you're entitled to say you have to use the interpreter. Yes. I think there's an expert on interpreting on this thing, so...
we talked about clerk mailing of notices. Uh, so attorney fees. So here's where I will zip up my flameproof suit uh, and go back a little further than I am. Um, so there's a lawyer in town who is making a little uh, cottage industry now of uh, putting in his attorney fees application to you all. Uh, here's my attorney fees application. Uh, if you're going to reject them or deny them, please tell us why. Uh, and um, many of you are, I should say many of you, but that's awful. A lot of times that's not happening. And then he is spending the money and the time and appealing it. And I have sent, I have vacated non-attorneys or reductions for the attorney fees because there's no apparent reason for it other than I just think the fee is too high. And I don't think that's the law. Uh, I, I think if you're going to reduce an attorney's fee, I think you have to put on the record. And one of the handouts, I, the, the, the one that I gave you today, that was not part of the packet, that single case one, uh, there's some quotes there uh, about putting things on the record. Uh, and, and that came out of an attorney's fees case, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so the law, we have a form. Which is amazing. Yeah, we have a set-off form. Uh, and I've seen it once, yeah. and, and the fee reduction that he complained about was so minuscule that I, I forget what I did. Yeah, that doesn't tell you what you did. It was, well, but I mean, the truth was when, when I got the, the when I was uh, overturned, my manager said that he knew you were going to be overturned. He wanted to do it anyway. So what he said to me, because I was going to say, it was a $245 claim right. where he put in $2,400 in attorney's books. And I was just so upset at the whole thing that I just reduced it to $100. And I knew, I knew I was going to get overturned, but I just... And I, and I, and I never think to myself, you know, you can't even get a lawyer to look at you for less than $100. Right. I, was, I did. I put out the form, and he actually did the ruling. I can give everyone the ruling if you want to... The ruling actually says, you know, it's true that the judge could have considered that the fees were excessive, that the judge could have considered the time and the blah, 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 and everything, but it's $100 is the same. Would that be a reconsideration when the judge is putting there? I, you know, and, and this lawyer has asked me, oh, judge, you ought to go ahead and impose what the appropriate fee is. And I, I <laughs> you know, I'm never going to say never, but. I cannot envision a set of circumstances right here and now where I would be doing that. So it's coming back to you. And here's the problem. I know in some circumstances you're, you're trying to do the tenant a favor, you're trying to do the litigant a favor, but then he asks me for fees on appeal, which I've got to give him. And then when he goes back to you guys, he's going to ask for more fees. So in the end, I think we're just... It's creating more fees. Yeah, he didn't yeah. give him fees on his appeal. And he actually... Oh, is that the one where he filed later? He said, oh, I never had a fee agreement. He said, I never had a fee agreement because I made a mistake and withdrawing my appeal, he said, after... So, did that tell that I was overturned once or not? Uh, okay. <laughs> 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 what I'm doing is a worksheet plus a convincing explaining where I got to that. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Because it's an, it is an abuse of discretion standard. 
And, and, it, and if you can uh, explain, and again, you know, I'm not looking for law review articles, obviously, but, you know, this amount of time seems excessive, you know, this was a form, uh, I've seen him use it 12 times already in this courtroom, and so building five hours, you know, where two and a half would have been, if you can well, explain it. Well, most of language anyway, so they're just... Well, most of it's boilerplate language. Anyway, but you still, they still have to read it. They still have the ethical obligation. Although this particular attorney is a bit suffering. Well, he said he did a lot of cutting and pasting on an appeal. So I'm waiting for his attorney to see Bill on that one because I'm going to have something to go to title. We blast the hours. We will like how much we think you get the hours. Explain it. If if you can explain it and it's an abuse of discretion standard, then that's the standard I guess to do. Uh, But and I understand the the impetus to say and remember the law is you cannot. The mere fact that the amount in controversy was less than the attorney fees involved is not grounds for reducing the attorney fees. There's very clear case law from the appellate courts on that. Yeah. When you read the motion, the motion talks about certain statutes or whatever that are not even pertinent pertinent to what he's talking about. Because I obviously just cut and paste something from another lawsuit that really doesn't even pertain to what he's, you know, the action he's putting forth. Okay. Now, what is the question? Does the Warner, Associates, whatever that case is, I think all those factors come out of. And I I understand that's where they came out of. I guess the choice I have to, or the thing that I have to decide is, is that checkbox sufficient? And I guess it depends on the amount of fees that were requested versus awarded, like since you volunteered. (laughs) (laughs) It was a $2,400 and it got reduced to a, a, a hundred, and one box or maybe two was checked. No, no, I checked all of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it still, it seems I mean, like further explanation might be required. But when we go down, like, we got to the yeah. all the ones, and it's a default. I don't want to care at all. I have a criminal background, like I told you, right? I don't have a civil background. I don't know what a motion for summary judgment is. I don't know what a default is. What were you talking about? No. Too many things. So I go to other judges who do have these backgrounds, and I show them these fee applications, and they're thinking, oh, this is reasonable. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah. this is, what's wrong with this? But there's a superior court commissioner to do this and they talk to them. They have told us that they don't give anything over $1,000 in superior court. That's what that they is told us. I, I, well, I was that commissioner for years. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Rarely, uh, I, I, 
There's a court so there's a court of appeals case that says and, and I don't want to because we are on the record and I don't want to get the hourly rate because I, I think that's too much identifying information. But that hourly rate the court of appeals says that doesn't seem excessive. But keep in mind And they are allowed and you're allowed to hire a gold plated lawyer to represent you in justice court. But, but keep in mind that part of the assumption with a higher rate is that you're hiring someone who has got significant experience and therefore should take less time to do something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Or what do you bother to take a $245 thing? I don't know that you could say that. Right. Yeah, but it's individual also goes in the same cases and then starts people. So it's like a bunch of people. For all of our new judges, yes, before it has case sites at the bottom. Those are the cases you want to read on attorney fees. It also has a comment section. It's not big, but what we're hearing is that you don't need to write a novel. There's a comment section. Check the boxes. You can come up with some standard language that you can cut and paste, and that's what I do. I have one page in words that I cut and paste from so I don't have to reinvent the wheel that will support or be driven by the cases that are cited at the bottom that you read. And they will give you the benchmarks that are being looked at. It, it's not easy to articulate the case law on it, but reading that case law through will tell you what you need to be saying in the comment section. And just not saying anything, I, I I don't think that's helpful, and, and I don't think you're accomplishing what it is. It seems like you're intending to accomplish. Okay. And, uh, with that, let us thank you, Mr. Hunter. So, I mean, I don't like the certain <laughs> 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 <laughs>